Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Carrie Janelle to discuss Milton Brown, the father of Texas swing, who mentored Bob Wills and invented the genre that combined jazz with traditional Texas string band music. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Carrie Janelle, author of Milton Brown and the Founding of Western Swing. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nate. And thank you. This book really opened my eyes. I, I was aware of Milton Brown. I'd had the complete um, CDs for 10, 15 years. I had enjoyed it, but I'd never really realized the extent to which he really is the true father of Western Swing. Yes, uh, that was uh, the uh, summation that I came up with after doing uh, all the research. It was a, a very interesting journey for me to uh, to discover this, especially growing up as a Bob Wills fan. And this has no no mark on Bob Wills whatsoever. Milton and Bob, of course, were in the Light Crust Doughboys together, Papi Leo Daniel, Daniel's group at the Burroughs Mills. But Milton left the Light Crust Doughboys first and was well out ahead of Bob Wills for the entire rest of his life. I think that the key to understanding each man's place in the history of the music uh, is to understand their personalities. Um, Milton Brown was a guy who knew how to organize things. He knew how to manage things. He knew how to plan. He had a business sense. Uh, he was a uh, uh, he was schooled. He went to high school and graduated from high school. Something that not very many uh, Texans did. Bob Wills was strictly an an instinctive musician. Uh, he had um, they both shared a great amount of charisma. But um, Bob Wills was not a businessman, and he proved that over and over again over his career. So as a result, it, was, it took a while for him to get, get jump-started. And by that time, Milton was leagues ahead of him. And, and he was. And it's funny you know, to look back and realize that Milton never had a national hit, and he never wrote a hit song. A few of his songs have been covered. A few of the songs that he did that he introduced into the Western String repertoire went on to be covered by Bob Wills. And... Cliff Bruner and on into George Strait. But Milton's importance, it's not as a songwriter and it's not as a major star. Sum up in a few sentences, why is Milton Brown so important? Milton Brown was important basically because there were very few people uh, in popular music history who single-handedly created a music genre. And it's not being too expansive to say this. Uh, when you have people like Bill Monroe basically inventing bluegrass all by himself, they're, they're, he was one of the very few examples. 
But Milton Brown took a Texas string band tradition and expanded it and literally brought it uptown, combining it with um, urban music sources, such as jazz and pop music, combining that with traditional rural, white rural instrumentation. Um, he developed the repertoire, he developed the instrumentation, he grew the size of the music, and he took it from small fiddle and guitar dances in private residences uh, into, the, into ballrooms. Uh, and this is what he recognized what was going on in popular music in the 1930s, and he jumped on it. So that was the important part. What, what Milton did not survive to do was see the music change. As a music genre uh, develops, um, the first thing that happens is that the, the music style is uh, established, but the repertoire is still in a nascent stage. So what you do in that case is take traditional sources or you take sources from other genres. And it wasn't until the late 1930s and the early 1940s when uh, Western Swing developed its own songwriters, uh, when you had people like Floyd Tillman and Cindy Walker writing for the genre. That didn't happen for a while. By that time, Milton had been dead. Yeah, and, and there's every indication that Milton could have developed into a songwriter. He wrote quite a few songs of his own, some of which are adaptations of other songs. But it wasn't for a lack of talent. It was simply that there were so many great jazz and blues songs and pop songs to bring into the repertoire that it wasn't a priority. And, and the record industry was absolutely dead for his entire career. It basically fell off a cliff in 1931, 30, between 29 and 32 the record industry essentially died. And so live radio performances and live performances were the way to be to reach audiences in this period. And that's what Milton did. I love the way you describe the book. You break it down and you say it's essentially not just the story of a man, although there's a quote that I've got to I've got to share that you describe Milton Brown as a man with a vision, a man whose love for people and instinct for entertainment drove him to cast aside traditions in one ambitious move after another. I want to let you elaborate on that, but first, it's also a story of a family, and it's a story of these musicians, and we'll talk about that first. But go back to that quote. Describe his vision, and this, I love this line, a man whose love for people. How did that drive him to, to cast aside traditions? Milton um, lived for his his live shows, his, uh, his dance band. Um, the musical Brownie's career did not depend on uh, on radio uh, or records um, as much as for his live dates. Um, as far as Milton was concerned, the records and the radio performances were meant to promote his live dates. And he just enjoyed entertaining people. He had the gift of gab. He started out uh, his career after graduating from high school as a salesman, uh, a traveling salesman. He sold just about anything. Uh, and he enjoyed meeting people and getting to know them. Uh, and I was really kind of charmed by the stories that I heard from the people who actually saw him uh, at dances. I was able to interview some of them. And he, they treated him like he was a member of their family, but he was also a god to them. They just idolized Milton. Uh, and they would love nothing better than to invite him over after a dance to their house 
for a homemade chicken dinner. And he just loved socializing with people in addition to entertaining them. Uh, and he never had an enemy. It, 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 you've heard the, the, the statement, so-and-so never met a friend. Well, that, that's, that's what Milton Brown was like. He had friends. Um, so it, it was it was that love for people that drove him on. His ambitions, it's, it's really unclear what his long-term goals were for the, his role in the entertainment industry because things were changing so quickly in the 1930s. He was only able to communicate his next step as opposed to five steps down the road. Yeah, but it's, you make it clear that he was – Thinking ahead, he was looking at movies. He was very much watching um, the Texas Centennial and ready to participate, pushing himself forward as, as someone who would be available and ready to participate in a big way in the big celebrations uh, at the State Fair and, and in DFW at that time. But you also say it's a story of a family. And this quote is really touching. It's the story of a family that limped into the 20th century on their hands and knees in the cotton fields, sharecroppers, the oldest son rising in his profession, threatened by the depression. And I want to play a song. And when we come back, I'll let you expand on, on the family's role and the, the socio-cultural context of Milton Brown. But let's go ahead and hear the musical Brownies. This is a song, Yes, Sir, that features a piano solo, and you can hear the jazz-style slap bass all the way through it. And this is one that you flagged as really showing off the musical Brownies and, and kind of how intensely they could swing. This is Yes, Sir by Milton Brown and the musical Brownies. She was single, yes, sir. Yes, sir. When that man walked in the flat and he hollered out, Who is that? Did I leave you without my hat? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, sir. And that was Yes, Sir by Milton Brown and his musical Brownies. And it's so, you know, we take it for granted that country bands these days are going to have drums, they're going to have keyboards, they're going to have sometimes horns. But when Milton Brown brought piano and stand-up bass into a Western string band, this was completely novel. These were lines being obliterated. Yeah, and they were just happenstance, too. Um, when Fred Calhoun joined the group, it was an accident. He, he had arrived to play on the radio, uh, and he heard uh, by word of mouth that, hey, you have to go out to this, to this dance hall on the edge of town uh, and listen to this Milton Brown band. They've got really good rhythm. You might fit in with them. Uh, and when Milton met him, he brought... Fred out onto the bandstand to play a number, and they played Nobody's Sweetheart Now, which is a hot jazz tune. And at the reaction of the crowd, Milton instinctively knew that a piano had to be added to his band, not only for the rhythm, but for the added uh, melodic interpretations that Fred Calhoun added. And that was the first regular piano player added to a Western band. So that's what, what he did. Uh, he recognized... Uh, opportunities when they came up. The same thing happened uh, when Bob Dunn came along uh, and when he decided to add twin fiddles to his band. All of these instrumental innovations came because he recognized something that would make his band better. 
And let's switch gears and go back to his family background, because, you know, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, the extent of rural white poverty in that era is something that's really kind of unrecognizable now. It was it was something that was basically eliminated after World War II. I mean, there's still obviously poor rural white people, but not as many as there were then. Describe kind of the hard scrabble uh, growth and development of Melton Brown and his family. Well, they, they were country people. They were from a, a small town called Stephenville, which was about 60 miles uh, southwest of, of, of Fort Worth. And uh, they got by. They weren't they weren't poor, but they were far from wealthy as well. Um, Milton's father worked uh, at a peanut factory, uh, and on weekends, uh, nights and weekends, he would he was a champion fiddle player, and so he used to play uh, for house dances. And sometimes he'd bring Milton along, and Milton might do the calls, uh, or eventually he would start singing a song. But Milton was the Brown family was very family oriented. They were very, very close. And they were made even closer uh, after Milton's uh, older sister uh, died mysteriously at the age of 16 in 1918, which is what um, drove them to leave Stephenville and move to the city of Fort Worth. But Milton, above all, wanted to help his family out. Uh, his father was getting getting on in years. Uh, he wasn't able to work very much anymore. And Milton became, uh, at the age of, of 22, uh, the breadwinner of the family. Now, he didn't graduate from high school until he was 22. But that's because he had to work while going to school at the same time in order to help his family out. So family was was extremely important to Milton, and he never let them down. And Milton struggled with some childhood health issues of his own that you think might have been a contributing factor to his early death. It's it's possible. I consulted a few doctors about uh, the um, what what I suspect is was uh, uh, his narcolepsy, which is falling asleep at a moment's notice without without warning. Um, he was not a very good driver. Um, but this was traced back to an attack of appendicitis that he had when he was when he was a boy, and he almost died from it. And appendicitis, severe appendicitis like this, could bring on um, these attacks of of having to fall asleep very quickly. So it's nothing's been confirmed. There were no medical records available. Um, no doctor on hand that could I could. Um, question to, to find out how they diagnosed this. Um, so it, it was mainly guesswork, but it were, it, there were puzzle pieces that fit together to form a logical solution to how this accident that killed him in 1936 occurred. Uh, a lot of people have assumed that he was drinking while he was driving. But when I interviewed several members of the musical Brownies who were with him that night, uh, Milton had admitted to them that uh, he wasn't drinking that night because he had a sour stomach. Something had disagreed with him and he wasn't drinking. So he wasn't drunk. So that kind of gave rise to another factor that he had fallen asleep at the wheel of his car. Tragic. And and let's go ahead and get to his um, adulthood. And one of the key meetings in his life is when he meets Bob Wills and guitarist Herman Arnspringer. 
Tell us how they met and what how their partnership developed. Back in those days, uh, house dances were uh, very important to the families uh, in Fort Worth. Uh, a lot of them, like the Browns, had moved from the country and they took that tradition with them. Uh, and uh, Milton would sing at these square dances and he ran across uh, Bob Wills and Herman Arnspiger, who were a, a fiddle and guitar duo, at a, down, at a, a, a house dance at, at the Eagles Hall in New York, uh, I'm sorry, in Fort Worth. Uh, and um, Milton just stepped up and heard a song that he knew, which was St. Louis Blues, and he started singing with them. So it was again, as we said before, happenstance. They decided to team up together. And Milton's little brother, Derwood, um, tagged along. He was quite young at the time, but he's a very interesting character, and he becomes basically Milton Brown's right-hand man will eventually take over the band after Milton's passing. Tell us a little bit about Derwood and his personality and how it differed from Milton's. Well, Derwood was a different kind of guy. He's, he's the guy that would, that would uh, put up his fists at a, at a moment's notice uh, in order to defend himself or somebody that he knew. Milton was more of the guy who would try and talk his way out of difficulties. Uh, so Durwood would get into scrapes every now and then, and uh, Milton was uh, almost like a—he wasn't just an older brother; he was almost like a father figure to uh, to Durwood because he was so much older than him. Milton was born in 1903, and um, Durwood was born in 1915. So there was there was a 12-year difference between them. So uh, he protected him as much as he could, um, but when Durwood started to play guitar. Then Milton thought, hey, that would be a great thing to add to our, our little trio um, with, uh, with Wills and Arnspiger. So he brought them along. And, and the rest is history. Tell us a little bit about their first break with WBAP and how they became the Aladdin Laddies. One thing that I discovered about Milton Brown's career is it didn't start with the Light Crest Doughboys. He had been a, uh, a paid performer uh, since the mid-1920s, since, uh, since the time that he got out of high school. He joined together with two friends, and uh, they became a vocal trio. And they originally called themselves the Three Yodeliers. But in getting sponsorships, back in those days, your sponsor helped give you your, your group name. So they never had a regular name. Uh, when they did a, a show for the uh, the Rock Island Railroad, they called themselves the Rock Island Rockets. When they did a benefit for uh, uh, the the Fort Worth the police police department, they called themselves the police the police quartet, adding another adding another member. So whatever sponsor that Milton could find affected the name of the group. And when they finally got onto radio, they were able to get the Aladdin Lamp Company, which made kerosene lamps, to sponsor them. And so at this point, they named themselves the Aladdin Laddies. They were even, and there's a, an image of this ad in the book, um, there was a laboratory that produced vaccines, very timely for today, in fact, called the Globe Laboratories. And so when, when that happened on radio, Milton became... Milton Brown and his Globetrotters. That was the, um, the sponsor for the group. So when the Light Crust Doughboys uh, started, that was just another in this long line of sponsorships. This was the one that hit it big because 
like Crest Flower, was a, a big company in the town of Fort Worth. Let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Right or Wrong, which has been in the Western Swing uh, repertoire up until the present day, covered by George Strait. This is Milton Brown and the Musical Brownies doing Right or Wrong. That was Milton Brown and the Musical Brownies doing Right or Wrong, a song he didn't write, but he did very much introduce into the Western String repertoire. Now, tell us about the Light Crust Doughboys. They get an opportunity to go uh, and be on KFJZ and work with, sponsored by the Light Crust uh, Flower Company, Burris Mills. Tell us about Pappy Leo Daniel and how he became involved with the group and what his initial reaction to Milton and his music, music was. Originally, uh, the um, the Light Crust Doughboys had uh, as their announcer uh, the station engineer. His name was Truett Kimsey. And once that the, uh, the they went on the air, they were getting very good response from the audience. Um, but the general manager, the sales manager, uh, W. Leo Daniel, didn't like the music at all. Uh, and in fact, he canceled the program because he hated hillbilly music and he hated dance music. He knew that wouldn't be good for his, uh, for his image. So what uh, O'Daniel did, once, uh, once the, the fan mail started coming in, complaining that the Doughboys had been dropped, uh, he went on the air and took over as the spokesman and manager. He recognized that this would be a good vehicle to promote himself. I mean, O'Daniel was, was a guy who, who had huge ambitions, political ambitions, um, and looked for every opportunity he could to promote himself. And so that's what he was using Light Crust Flower and the Light Crust Doughboys uh, for doing for his career. So he decided to start um, writing poetry and adapting songs with his poems um, and using the Light Crust Doughboys to promote himself. He didn't want to give anybody any other credit for their musicianship. So none of the musicians, even Milton Brown's real names were used on the air. Milton became the boy with the golden voice. Um, so that's that's how, how that worked. Eventually he knew that he could expand his influence beyond Fort Worth, so he formed a radio network, Texas's first radio network, uh, bought a, a bus, a small bus, and started touring around the state while performing. So it was O'Daniel that really spread the popularity of the Light Crust Doughboys more than anything else could. But at the same time, he's distorting their material by discouraging the hot jazz and the dance numbers and encouraging a more maudlin sort of traditional song craft. There are some uh, existing scripts uh, I have a few of those of uh, what the Doughboys program was like. It was all scripted, by the way. Um, but the songs were not the hot jazz. It wasn't Nobody's Sweetheart and Chinese Honeymoon and Right or Wrong and that sort of thing. Uh, it were uh, songs of home and hearth, uh, 
sacred songs, songs about moms, songs about uh, um, sad, sad deaths, uh, event ballads, things like that. Um, things that that would not, uh, um, I guess you could say, disrupt people's view of what the music was supposed to be like. But it wasn't musical difference that's, that drove Milton away. It was uh, tensions over trying to get his brother Durwood a job at the factory. Why did Milton split, and why did he not take Bob Wills with him? Milton was earning $15 a week playing for uh, W. Leo Daniel. But O'Daniel, as part of their agreement, demanded that not only did they play their daily broadcast, but they had to work at the mill also. So Milton Brown was a, a salesman. Uh, Bob Wills uh, worked at the mill. Herman Arnspiger drove a truck. They did whatever they could there. Uh, and after a while, Milton thought he deserved a raise with all the money that he was bringing in for O'Daniel through his successful broadcasts. Um, now, Durwood had been playing along with them, but uh, he was still only 14, 15 years old, and Milton wanted to get him as a paid musician on the job. So he went to O'Daniel and he said, look, uh, I deserve a raise. Uh, I want more money and I want you to hire Durwood also. Well, uh, O'Daniel said, um, okay, uh, I can give you a raise, but I can't use Durwood. I'm not gonna pay him. And this was on a Friday when this happened. Milton had anticipated this was going to happen. This is what I think about what I say about um, taking one step ahead, thinking one step ahead. He was already with his own group. He started his own group, and they went on the air on a rival radio station on Monday morning. Wow. On KTAT. So he had his guys already there. Now, he may have asked Bob Wills to join him, but Bob had a good thing going. He had a job. He was playing on the radio. He was working at the mill. And he didn't feel like it was worth the risk to go off with Milton, uh, an untried artist with his own brand new band, um, because Bob was very poor at the time, and so was Herman Arnspiger. So they both stayed with the Light Crusto Boys, and O'Daniel hired eventually Tommy Duncan to replace Milton in the band. But Milton um, thought it was good anyway, because Bob Wills wasn't Milton's kind of fiddle player. Milton was interested in hot jazz. He wasn't interested in the, the mom and God songs that O'Daniel wanted on the radio. He knew that the people wanted hot jazz, and he found two hot fiddle players to work with him. First, it was Jesse Ashlock, and then after a few months, he brought in Cecil Brower. And both of them could play uh, improvised jazz solos, whereas Bob Wills could not. Bob Wills was uh, strictly a breakdown fiddler. Uh, he played rags and breakdowns and hoedowns, uh, and he wasn't really uh, a schooled musician. He was an instinctive musician, which means that if he felt like adding another bar to uh, another beat to a bar, he'd do it. And if you listen to Bob Wills's music, you can hear that some bars have five beats, some have three beats. He might he might wait seven beats before he comes in with his next vocal. Um, so it's very hard for musicians to play along with Bob Wills. Um, but the classically trained violinists, really, that uh, Milton Brown brought with him 
um, made it easier for dancers to be able to step with a beat, and Wills couldn't. And not only does he have these fiddle players who are ready, willing, and able to play hot jazz improvised solos a la Louis Armstrong or um, Eddie Lang, somebody like that, he, he brings in a banjo player and a stand-up bass right away. So even before he later adds the piano and the steel guitar, he's already um, making it a very different style of band. And let's take a break from our, to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll, tell you, we'll, we'll get you to tell us more about the musical brownies. So right from the get-go, Milton Brown's vision for the band is very different from what the Light Crust Doughboys had been or what anybody had done in Texas or anywhere in the West, for that matter. And even just the matter of a, having a group that was led by a singer that featured vocals on almost every song was very atypical of music at the time and really revolutionary. Only Bing Crosby at that period of time was was known as a featured singer. It wouldn't be until the 1940s that people like Frank Sinatra and Perry Como and Doris Day break away from bands and become star singers. This is very much a period when instrumental bands and arrangers dominate the scene. Milton was totally visionary in this and in the hot rhythms of the band. What were some of his musical influences that he was bringing to bear? Well, again, Milton Brown was interested in playing for the relatively urban audience of Fort Worth. Now, Fort Worth was still a country town, but it was a large country town, and it had network radio programs, and he listened to the radio incessantly and listened to records. He wanted to know what people wanted to hear, what the popularity was at the time. This was a transitory period in popular music when uh, jazz bands were starting to grow uh, physically, um, into larger and larger groups, and eventually by the mid-30s would develop into swing. So Milton would be hearing these records, but he didn't want to startle or uh, alienate his audiences by adding in too many uh, urban instruments, such as horns. He didn't want clarinets, he didn't want trumpets, he didn't want trombones immediately. He wanted to do it with string instruments. So he would translate the, what he heard on these jazz records, these pop and jazz records, to the string band instrumentation. So if the, the, the lead might be played by a clarinet or a trumpet, he would have the violins play that. Uh, when he brought in the steel guitar, the steel guitar was meant to imitate the sound of a trombone section uh, with its multiple strings and its sliding ability. So that was what he was doing at the time. Now, as far as vocals were concerned, there were plenty of vocalists uh, of dance bands that were popular. Bing Crosby was just one of them. Rudy Valley uh, had his own dance band and was a very popular, well-known singer. Uh, crooning had come in with the advent of the microphone in the mid-1920s. So vocalists were big stars at that time, but not in traditional Texas music. Um, the vocal was limited to square dance calls at the time. Uh, there were solo cowboy singers that sang on the radio, people like Mark Williams, the crooning cowboy of, uh, of Dallas and Fort Worth. But Milton was really the first major singer in, in Texas rural music. So that was the first innovation. After that came the twin violins. <clears throat> he, uh, he felt that drums were a little bit um, too intrusive upon rural music, so he had other ways of adding rhythm, and that was through the rhythm section consisting of piano, 
uh, slapping string bass and the four string banjo of O.C. Stockard. And that was as good, if not better than, than, than drums, getting those three guys in a groove. And Derwood Brown, too, who was apparently a ferocious rhythm guitar player, player notorious for constantly breaking strings. Exactly, yeah. Derwood Brown rounded out that, uh, that section, uh, the rhythm section as well. I mean, he could play lead guitar, and there are a few examples of that on record, uh, but it's almost like he was falling downstairs when he was playing the guitar. He was much better at rhythm. Uh, and he played he played such hard rhythm that he would break strings on the bandstand all the time. And that required the third Brown brother to sit on the bandstand in a chair with a fresh guitar waiting for Derwood to break a string. And he would just hand him a new guitar and Derwood wouldn't even miss a beat. So he wouldn't even have to stop the song to change strings. That's classic. And they, and they rocked that 2-4-B that we associate mostly with New Orleans jazz or Kansas City jazz later on down the road. That really must have got people dancing in Fort Worth at the time. He knew that the 2-4 beat, the Dixieland beat, was what people needed to step with in order to do their, uh, their dancing. This was strictly dance music. It was not uh, music uh, like music in the East where you sat down and listened to it. The purpose of Western swing music in those days was to dance. And so every song, even the waltzes, had to have a dance beat to it. And they had basically a home base. Tell us a little bit about the Crystal String Springs Dance Hall. Well, this was a, a, a dance hall that was built over a gravel pit. Um, it was excavated by uh, a guy named Sam Cunningham. Uh, who eventually accidentally discovered these natural springs, uh, and mineral springs, and he decided to build a resort there. Uh, and people in the summer would go there and they'd swim and they'd have dances. And it was a very nice place to vacation uh, without really going very far out of town. So he started this dance hall and Milton Brown um, came upon it uh, when he was with, uh, with Bob and Herman. And they started playing dances there. So initially they played every night except Sunday. They were there at Crystal Springs uh, at the dancing pavilion. And they when also... Milton, when, Mil ahead. when Milton um, split off from Bob and started his own band, he started booking jobs out of town. And he would only play uh, maybe one or once or twice a week uh, at Crystal Springs. Saturday night for sure, because that was the big dance night. But the rest of the week, he would go out of town and play little dance halls that dotted all across Texas. And they were also being broadcast on uh, radio. At first, it was KTAT, but pretty soon, Milton's being syndicated around the state as well. Yeah, I wouldn't really call it being syndicated. He was on a network, uh, which is kind of different than being syndicated. Uh, there was no radio syndication there, so to speak. It was just a, a network that had several radio stations uh, in their in their hookup. Uh, and so he could be heard on more than one station at a time. He could be heard in Houston. He could be heard in San Antonio uh, as well as, as Fort Worth. So that was the Texas Quality Network that uh, W.D.O. Daniel uh, started up. So this helped promote Milton throughout the state. And the local dance halls would write to him and want him to uh, book an appearance at their dance hall. So Milton, being the band's manager as well as the leader and singer, would arrange for these little tours occasionally 
uh, where he might play for two or three nights at a time before coming back to Fort Worth. The problem was that initially he had this daily radio program that he had to had to do every day. So you could only go far enough away in order to be able to drive back after the dance, get a, a quick uh, quick couple of hours sleep and get up and go do your radio program. So it was a very hard life for them to be on the road six days a week, come back, play Crystal Springs, and just come back every single day in the bus and do your daily radio program. There were no transcriptions at that time. Radio transcriptions didn't start until after Milton had, had died, 1936. Uh, so he was forced to do all of his programs live. And even though record sales were a very minor part of the music business in this era, Milton did sign record contracts and record with both Bluebird and then later on Decca Records. Tell us a little bit about his recording career and the style of stuff that he did, that he chose to cut from a very big repertoire of songs. Well, Milton uh, did have a very big repertoire of songs. That's true. Um, when they first signed with uh, Bluebird Records, they went down to San Antonio and uh, recorded for them. They had there was a uh, an artist and repertoire man with. With Victor, Bluebird was a subsidiary. It was the budget label of Victor Records. Um, the fellow's name was Eli Oberstein, and Eli Oberstein uh, wanted Milton to perform uh, songs that could be sold, so it was familiar songs. Milton knew all the popular songs, uh, but Oberstein didn't want to pay royalties to anybody. He wanted to take some of the royalties for himself, so he would sometimes disguise the titles of some of the songs uh, and call it either traditional or invent a, uh, a pseudonym for songwriter's credit, and he'd end up taking it himself. Uh, you might notice some of the songs that he recorded on Bluebird had the name Dan Parker written under the song title. Well, this there was no such person as Dan Parker. The mysterious was, and prolific Dan Parker. <laughs> probably That was probably Eli Oberstein publishing the song under his own name, using Dan Parker as a pseudonym. Um, let's go so, ahead and sorry to interrupt, but I want to I want to go ahead and play our next song, which is "Taking okay. Off," featuring Bob Dunn on electric steel guitar. And when we come back, I want you to tell us about Bob Dunn and why he was so revolutionary. This is "Taking Off" by Milton Brown on the musical Brown. It's featuring Bob Dunn. Taking Off, which features the electric sound of Bob Dunn's steel guitar. Tell us about Bob Dunn coming onto the scene. And this was the first electric instrument recorded, correctly? Um, no, uh, it's, no. It's the first by uh, an American, if you want to call it an American band. Actually, the first, uh, the first artist to amplify a guitar on record uh, was a fellow by the name of Joseph Lopez, who played with a Hawaiian group called the Noalani uh, Hawaiian Orchestra uh, in, uh, I think it was early 1933, late 1932. Um, but um, Bob Dunn was the first 
Western artists, uh, and that includes pop and jazz performers, uh, to amplify uh, his steel guitar. The song Taking Off, by the way, if you listen to that song very carefully, there's no melody to that song. He starts off just by playing improvisation. The chord progression is uh, done to a Frankie Trumbauer uh, recording of Singing the Blues, which is a very popular Bic Spiderbeck uh, number from the 1920s. So Bob Dunn's biggest hit didn't even have a melody that people could sing along with. Anyway, um, Bob Dunn, uh, again, these great innovations happened by accident. He was a, uh, a steel guitar player. He played Hawaiian music. He loved Hawaiian music. He had a correspondence going with, um, with a, uh, a famous uh, early recording artist um, uh, in, in Hawaii who um, learned steel guitar for uh, the Pan American uh, Exposition in San Francisco in 1915. His name was Walter Kolomoku. And Walter Kolomoku uh, had a correspondence course to teach how to play Hawaiian guitar, and Bob Dunn latched onto that. Well, Bob was uh, kind of a hobo, and he was traveling around the country. And when he got to the boardwalk in, uh, in New Jersey, in Atlantic City, he happened upon a black musician who had a, uh, a little amplifier set up and was playing on the boardwalk there. Well, he figured out how to do this, how to magnetize his strings, and uh, got an amplifier and started playing this way. And when, when Milton got wind of this, when Bob, uh, Bob Dunn was a, a friend of Durwood's and Durwood brought Bob in to audition for, uh, for Milton uh, at, uh, at the radio station. And when he brought him in and saw what he could do, um, he just jumped on him and said, you've got to join this band. And Bob said, I don't have an amplifier. So they went down to Woodward's Music Store in Mineral Wells, Texas, and Milton bought him an amplifier. And so that uh, that started Bob Dunn's appearance with the band. And Jimmy Rogers had played with Hawaiian musicians and, and featured lap steel on some of his recordings. But I think you can successfully argue that it was because of Milton and Bob Dunn that steel guitar became such an integral part of first Western swing and later honky tonk and all country and Western music. Yeah, Bob Dunn could play the Hawaiian style, but when he amplified his guitar, he was he was doing Jack Teagarden. He was doing trombone work, uh, improvising on trombone. And for the first couple of years that he was with Milton Brown, uh, this became the style to copy throughout the Southwest. Every steel guitarist that came along, including Bob Wills' steel guitarist, Leon McAuliffe, started out by using Bob Dunn as his model. And it wasn't until Leon McAuliffe started adding uh, more of a country sound, a pedal steel kind of sound, to um, to steel guitar that it developed into what we now know as the the pedal steel um, the the sound of Nashville steel guitar, but initially it was a, a hotter, uh, more staccato kind of sound to it. There wasn't too much of the sliding that was used later on. Um, when Leon McAuliffe recorded Steel Guitar Rag with Bob Wills in September of 1936. That started the change in the sound of the steel guitar. But all through the late 1930s, you can still hear the Bob Dunn influence. And let's talk a little bit more about Milton's recording career. Tell us about the move to Decca Records and the recording sessions they did for Decca. Milton was uh, brought on board by uh, Dave Cap, who was the A&R chief with Decca Records. He knew that 
um, Milton was the most popular band in the Southwest at the time. And uh, he brought Milton up to Chicago to record in January of 1935. Uh, they weren't doing field sessions yet at that point. Um, field recording sessions began in the 1920s uh, in order to get to a, uh, a performer's home base. Uh, sometimes they didn't want to leave town and go to New York, and they weren't the same when they were in a, uh, an urban atmosphere. They were more comfortable at home. Uh, but Milton Brown was aching to go to the big city, and so he um, he talked uh, to D Dave Cap, and Cap paid for the whole group to travel by train up there to Chicago. They went to the Furniture Mart building, which still exists, by the way, and uh, they recorded for several days. And Cap was delighted with the music, uh, mainly because of the professionalism of the group. They could record all day long and never have to do a second take. Milton wasn't very happy with Eli Oberstein uh, when he was with Bluebird, uh, especially with the song Garbage Man Blues, which he did, uh, in which he started off with a very complex introduction by Fred Calhoun on the piano, where he was playing 10th chords, which is kind of uh, abrasive to the ear. And when it was time for Milton to come in with his vocal, he came in in the wrong key. And they recorded the whole song and Milton was aghast when he realized what he had done. And he told Eli Oberstein, can we do that one over again? And Oberstein said, nah, your fans will never know the difference. And Gosh. so it came out that way with Milton singing the whole first verse in the wrong key. So uh, he did two sessions for Bluebird and then liked Dave Cap a lot better. Um, recorded for him in, uh, in Chicago. And then when they started doing field recordings, um, the next time Decca was in the area, which was in New Orleans in March 1936, uh, Milton drove with his band, with his bus, all the way to New Orleans. And they had a three-day recording session in March of 1936, in which they recorded 48 songs in three days. I mean, one of those days, he did 22 songs in one session just went one after another. He was basically playing his, his, his dance lineup. He could just wow. play songs all night long and never have to repeat one. And let's hear one more. This is our last number. And this is Am I Blue, also uh, covered by George Strait later on. And this is a needle drop from a 78, so you can get some of the feel of the scratchy sound of the 78. This is Milton Brown and the musical Brownies doing Am I Blue. Ain't the tears in these eyes telling you Am I Blue You'd be too if each plan with your gal done fell through. There was a time I was her only one, but now I'm the sad and lonely one. Lordy, was I gay until today. Now she's gone and with through, am I blue? And that was Am I Blue by Milton Brown and the musical Brownie. Some of you might recognize that from George Strait's version in the 1990s. And Milton was never sitting still. He was constantly adding musicians and dropping musicians and changing things in the lineup. Tell us a little bit about the twin fiddle approach that they developed and how that worked and why it was innovative at the time. 
You know, this is something that, that Milton Brown actually did not innovate. Uh, he, he made it famous, but he wasn't the first person to do that, uh, the first uh, person to use twin fiddles. Um, that was done by a, a little Fort Worth band called the Southern Melody Boys, which included two schooled violin players, uh, Kenneth Pitts and Cecil Brower. Now, both of them studied with a Fort Worth um, symphony player by the name of Wilbert Brown. Wilbert was spelled with a Y, W-Y-L-B-E-R-T. And he wasn't related to Milton Brown, but uh, he was a, uh, a professional teacher in the Fort Worth area. And so he taught both of these guys, as well as Buck Buchanan and some other uh, top-notch uh, Western swing violin players, to, uh, to, to, to play in harmony together. And so the Southern Melody Boys started doing this, started having these two musicians. Milton heard both of them. Kenneth Pitts was uh, not available to go with Milton, so he brought in Cecil Brower, and Cecil Brower was added to Jesse Ashlock, and they played uh, twin violins at that point. When Jesse Ashlock left the band, uh, then he was replaced by Cliff Bruner. Actually, there was another violinist in between by the name of Ted Grantham, but Cliff Bruner was the key addition to the band, uh, an amazing violin player who could play lead and harmony. And that combination of Cecil Brower and Cliff Bruner inspired many, many violinists to start playing in Texas. And Milton experimented with horn players at various times as well. Sure. Um, when the occasion demanded, if he was playing a very large facility that required more volume than he could muster with, uh, with um, just Bob Dunn's steel guitar, then he would do that. I mean, Bob Dunn, you have to realize that the, 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 each musician did not have their own microphone and their own speaker. Everything was done acoustically. Uh, what Milton played with was a, a he had a PA mic, and that's what he sang into. And when a musician had to take a solo, they'd literally step up to the microphone. That's why they were able to do these songs so quickly in the recording studio, because the recording studios used one microphone too. So they just did their, uh, their dances um, in front of a microphone. When Bob Dunn came along, he didn't have a microphone, but he had a pickup and, a, and his own amplifier for his steel guitar. So that was the only other instrument that was amplified. Well... When they played a very, very large place that was even larger than Crystal Springs, and Milton would play for a thousand people at a time or more, uh, he felt the need to add louder instruments. So on occasion, he would hire a trumpet player, he might hire uh, um, a saxophone, and he even had a drummer. Um, it was very seldom because he knew that his orchestra, uh, his audience, uh, really wanted to retain that rural feel, and they didn't want a big band at the time. Later on, Bob Wills would, would capitalize upon that, and people did start wanting it as we moved on later into the mid-1930s. And Bob Wills made horns a regular part, and drums a regular part of his band, and you have to give Wills credit for that. But for Milton, he still liked the string band sound best. And Milton never got to develop because he dies tragically at age 32 in a car accident after a show. Tell us some of the things that he was working on and how his heirs, Derwood Brown and Cliff Brunner in particular, carried on the Milton Brown tradition. Milton was getting tired. He was tired of playing six days a week. He was tired of driving in his bus. He wanted to get off the road. 
and also the area around the Fort Worth uh, vicinity was getting played out. Um, people were, were, they weren't getting tired of him, but he wanted to explore new, newer audiences and he wanted to make more money. Uh, he wanted to get into the movies. So he actually negotiated first with uh, Gene Autry to appear in his new Western that was coming up in the spring of 1936 called Oh Susanna. Well, of course, Milton was making so much money, he couldn't afford to leave his day-to-day -day existence in order to drive all the way to California to shoot this Western. So he turned down Gene Autry and they ended up hiring the light crust doughboys in, uh, instead. Similarly, uh, the, big, um, the big event of 1936 in Texas was the Texas Centennial Celebration, which took place in Dallas, and there was also uh, a celebration in Fort Worth. Well, this gave Milton uh, a great opportunity to be uh, seen and heard by people outside of the area, people coming down to Texas. Duke Ellington was going to appear there. Uh, Sally Rand was going to bring her nude ranch show down there as well. And Milton was very excited at this opportunity. Once again, they couldn't afford to pay him what he wanted in order to, to make more money. And they ended up hiring a smaller band to play that. So the next step that he made, and this was the last step, was to move his whole operation down to Houston. He was talking to the uh, owner of uh, KPRC radio down there, and they'd actually struck a deal. And he was making plans to move to Houston later on in 1936 when he had his accident. So he wasn't, he was already getting, getting uh, antsy to leave Fort Worth and move on to bigger and better things. And after he passes, both his brother Durwood and his fiddler Cliff Bruner go on to lead bands of their own. Durwood not as successfully, Cliff Bruner left quite a mark in musical history. Durwood Brown was simply not the manager that Milton was. Um, he, couldn't, he couldn't handle his drinking as much. He wasn't as dependable. He didn't have the business acumen. Um, and frankly, even though his band was hugely popular and musically influential, people came to see Milton Brown. And when Milton wasn't there, the dances just dried up, and within a year, Derwood had to break up the band. Now, it splintered into different factions. O.C. Stockard took some of the members and uh, became a very popular Fort Worth group called the Wanderers. Cliff Bruner um, took Bob Dunn down to South Texas, and they started performing in Beaumont and then on, on Houston radio station um, KXYZ and became very, very popular. He was a uh, an excellent band leader as well. Uh, by the late 1930s, there were new songs coming in, and Bruner had a very lasting influence on, on Western swing throughout the 1950s. And Carrie, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. My guest has been Carrie Janelle. The book is Milton Brown and the Founding of Western Swing. And I want to thank you for coming and talking to us. But more importantly, I want to thank you for capturing this information when you did in the 90s when so many of these people were still alive. Thank you so much for your contribution to documenting musical history. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Nate. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. 
Next week, Nate welcomes J.D. Considine to discuss his concept of Dorian Gray music, the stuff that stays popular decade after decade and shows no signs of flagging in popularity. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.